2: It's the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast with your host, The Wolf and Action Jackson, who are keeping rock alive by talking classic rock, hard rock, progressive rock, heavy metal, 80s music, early MTV, UK versus US chart success, and much more. This is the home of classic album and live concert reviews and your place for interviews with artists and legends. You're rocking with The Wolf. Hey out there rock and rollers welcome to episode number 166 of the ugly American werewolf in London rock podcast brought to you by me your host Mac B the wolf and I will be joined as usual for my partner in crime from the east coast of the United States of America Gary action Jackson. And I hope that you guys not only checked out our most recent Ugly American Werewolf and London" show on Kiss's debut as it's turning 50, if you can believe that, but also our most recent First Concert Memories, it's our new monthly sidecast where we talk to someone about the first time they saw a particular band or artist and how it changed their life. And we were so happy to welcome Stephanie Byers of Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes and also of the Song Facts podcast to talk about the first time she saw Meatloaf at the tender age of 13, the first of 13 times she would see him. She brought the passion. She was a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs. It was a great episode. So if you missed it, I really do encourage you to go check it out. But this week, we have someone who has worked with all the greatest legends in the history of classic rock. That kind of British family tree of greatness that we talk about on the show from time to time. Yeah, he knows all those guys. He's worked with all of them. And in particular, Slowhand himself, or God, if you prefer, Mr. Eric Clapton. And that's. Guitar tech Lee Dixon, who's from Glasgow, Scotland, got down to London in the 60s, started working with rock bands and doing production stuff throughout the 70s, worked with Clapton once, and then at the end of 70s, when it was time for Clapton to move on, get a new band, and get a new crew, Lee started working with him, eventually became his technician, and was with him for 30 years. If you think about it, all the amazing things that Clapton did during those 30 years, from about 1979 or so to about 2009 or so. We're talking the Arms Concerts, Live Aid, the Crossroads box set and Journeyman tour, MTV Unplugged, movie soundtracks, the Bob Dylan concert, the Crossroads concerts to benefit the Crossroads Center, the Concert for George, the new Cream reunion shows, the tour he did with Steve Winwood. Lee was there for every bit of that. And it's a shame that we really only have him for about an hour or so, because honestly, we could have talked to him forever. Now, hopefully we'll be able to get him back on. He's a funny guy. It's only my second time ever hanging out with him, but his stories are second to done. He's quite a character. He's got some great voices and he doesn't really pull any punches. He's got great stories, not only about Eric, but about some of the biggest legends of all time. I'm talking about George Harrison and Jeff Beck, not to mention all the great people in his bands that he's played with over the years. And we're going to dive into just a little bit about his life on the road with Eric Clapton before we get to that we got to take care of a little business we love the fact that we are proud members of the pantheon podcast family a network of about 100 different shows all music not all rock and roll there really is something in there for everyone you can visit pantheonpodcast.com to learn more or follow on pantheon pods and we love our sponsor rarevinyl.com they're based in the uk folks but they ship all around the world they have over a quarter million items in stock and they really have everything from lps to cds singles tour programs, ticket stubs, posters, point-of-sale stuff from record stores, all sorts of great treasures in amazing condition that you can find at rarevinyl.com. So go to Rare Vinyl, find something that you love, and then use code UGLY. You can save 10% off the entire order. That's only a one-time order, so don't think, okay, well, I'll get one album here this month, maybe a couple next month, a few. No, no, the code only works once. So buy all those things all at once, save 10% off all at once with the code UGLY, at rarevinyl.com now back to lee Yes, quite a character, the kind of guy you'd meet at a pub and never want to walk away from because his stories are so vivid and he's got so many of them. And he really does paint the picture of what it's like as life on the road. Everybody always thinks it's so great. You always look at the rock star's perspective, but you don't always look at the people who are making it happen, the hardworking crew who maybe aren't on the private jets and staying at the four seasons, but are instead stay until four in the morning for the loadout and then driving all night to the next town. But for our classic rock and guitar god fans, you're going to like this one. Jump in with us here. This is guitar tech Lee Dixon, who worked with Eric Clapton and many others, talking about his career here on The Wolf. So welcome, finally. Guitar tech extraordinaire and
1: legend Lee Dixon to the ugly American werewolf in London. Uh, that's a pretty powerful intro. <laughs> um, all I can say is thank you very much. No, no, thank you. And, you know, as two
2: guys who love music and have for a long time, see, I, it means a lot to me, but have no talent really to get as close as you have been to. God, rock royalty, you'd have to call
1: it for so long. The stories you have must be unbelievable. <laughs> there, there are hundreds of great stories, and as we discussed over a beer a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. some of them can be told, but some of them would—I uh, don't want to get you guys banned from the world <laughs> of podcasting. <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah. I've, I, so it's been an amazing. Uh, just, I mean, being with Eric for thirty plus years was just mind blowing. You know, the stuff I got to do, the people I got to meet. Mm-hmm. And all that kind of thing. Meeting my heroes, meeting all of my heroes, hanging with them, you know. And, and we definitely want to hear about some of that. Why don't you tell our listeners though, just a little bit about your beginnings, how you got into the business, and then maybe how it is you started to work for Slowhand. Coming from Glasgow, Scotland, which is at the, was at the time a very sort of tough sort of industrial city, and being the guy who always played the fool at school, you know, I, I'd know didn't go to college or anything, but I had several friends who. uh drifted towards London to get into the music business, the touring business. Mm. And um, I'd noticed that a couple of years before, you know, the bands like 10 years after and Jethro Tull and people were really becoming big in the States. The States were opening up pre Zeppelin and all that. Okay. And uh, I had buddies down in, in London and they were going, oh man, you should get into this. It's great. So fast forward a bit. There's a very famous Scottish band called the sensational Alex Harvey band right from the 70s Alex was uh, just a consummate kind of theatrical frontman. friends of mine I was very depressed uh, bass player's wife said come and stay with us mm-hmm. so and I owe this girl forever I had a girlfriend at the time who was working in Holland and she knew how down I was about my situation and she sent me I don't know 400 guilders or something okay which was just enough money to pay off the back rent some money I owed to a guy and I had £10 left, which was the price of a ticket to London. Okay. <laughs> so it was literally, you know, a small suitcase, shoulder bag and go. And yada, yada, yada. Fast forward, I went to work for a, a sound and PA company initially. Okay. And I was doing such incredibly interesting but diverse tours as as the ramones you know one minute i'm out with the ramones next minute i'm out with weather report okay. which was one of the most mind-blowing experiences of my musical life next thing i'm out with some guy called gilbert o'sullivan who was a kind of a quirky english pop yeah it was that kind of work gotcha so clapton was one of the clients and uh these were in the you know it's the 70s so i mean pretty much everybody's drinking and Sure. Doing all these different things that <laughs> are highly unrecommended these days. Yes, yes. And I did a few tours, uh, did a couple of tours, got taken to America when we had Muddy Waters opening for us, which was mind-blowing. Wow. And I became Muddy's lighting guy because they didn't, they you know, they didn't have anyone. And at a certain period, Eric lost all the band, what we called the Tulsa Band, which was the 461 Ocean Boulevard Band. You oh, know, okay. Uh, Carl Radle Dickie Sims Jimmy Oldacre All sadly dead George Terry uh, Marcy Levy everyone Element. Touring with them We had great fun Mm. Every every night after the show Was back in a hotel Having a party We were coming up For a Japanese tour And Eric had changed The whole band Consequently changed the crew And a friend of mine Who's since passed away uh, Alan Rogan Who was Pete Townsend's tech He was looking after Eric For a couple of weeks Ah. I was in Japan He had to leave I said I'd love to do it. Production manager, God bless him, gave me a chance. It worked out. And Eric and I were like this for 30 years. Wow. And um, had,
2: I mean, how much guitar had you played at that point?
1: Me? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'd worked with local bands. I knew what a guitar was. I knew how to string one and stuff. But okay. really, uh, there's so much on offer nowadays with internet, YouTube, every kind of medium out there to to learn everything from beginner to virtuoso. But with me, it was just books, you know, and somebody showed me a couple of chords. Mm-hmm. But the main reason I wanted to play guitar is because of my writing. I mean, I've always written a lot of lyrics, and a lot of songs, done nothing with them. Uh, anyone listening, I'm open for offers <laughs> yes. to co-write. And it was really as a vehicle. Then when I got the gig, I had to step it up a little bit Sure, learn, yeah Learn a bit more Learn quickly um, He was a good guy to work for You know, he wasn't uh, No prima donna stuff or anything And we were together As I say Tight as two peas in a pod For 30 years But in the business You know, there's a- like any other thing, there's politics and there's all that yeah. kind of stuff. I, I fought for him. I fought his corner. I never told any of the stories. I never said anything about anything. I, mm-hmm. I did what I was supposed to do, diligently, loyally, never missed a gig. And uh, then some other people kind of got involved. Occasionally, I would be a little, um, I can't think of a suitable word, not boisterous, but when you work, sometimes you get given a couple of idiots to work with, you maybe shout at them or something. Yeah, yeah. And I, And I'm a being told I'm a larger than live character. So one thing led to another, and Eric said he had let me go, and that was uh, very, very hurtful. So then we moved out to Louisville. I took a year off just to sort of adjust to it, sure. thinking about it. And I was very resentful initially, but after much thought, you know, I could never have done any of it without Eric, you know. Sure, yeah. So mm-hmm. it, he opened so many doors for me, gave me a wonderful life. So it's just sad that the way it ended, you know, it was like a uh, like a divorce rather than uh, being sacked. You sure, know? yeah, yeah. It sounds like a great story, just your experiences. Yeah, so um, coming from... Coming from Scotland and being all of a sudden, you know, one minute I'm watching the Beatles on television, the next minute I'm in George Harrison's house. You know, it's like it's uh, a lot to take in. (laughs) Okay, so
0: my question is or my my thinking about how you what your job was, you pretty much ran the deal. I mean, you set everything up. You I I believe that you were you were saying at one point in time that you picked the guitars that were going to go out on on the uh, tour.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the I, uh, the guitar player, obviously, you get to know them, you know what they want to play. Everyone on the road had their own guy. You know, there was a keyboard tech, bass tech, and sometimes I'd fill in for him. I just All I did was look after Eric, and mm-hmm. um, I think what you're referring to is would be maybe going on a, a big tour, maybe North America or something, you know, following on to Japan. And I'd say to him, you know, what do you want to take? You know, and he'd go, well, just a couple of strats and acoustic. And I'd go, you sure that's it? And he'd say, yeah. Then I'd go to the warehouse and I'd I'd sit and I'd look at the set list and I'd think about songs he potentially might want to do and I'd fill up another two or three cases of guitars. That'd be another <laughs> dozen guitars or so, you know, Gibson L5s, Gibson, old Gibson, Birdlands, Les Pauls. And I found that eight times out of ten, every time, you know, would be quarter way through the tour or halfway through the tour or, or sometimes a few nights in, and he'd go, Shane, you know, I really want to do somewhere over the rainbow, man, but I can't do it without the L5." And I'd go, "Well, I've got it here." And he'd go, "Oh, you got it? Oh, great!" <laughs> and the first couple of times he said, "Why did you bring all these guitars?" I said, "Trust me, because you'll want them, you know." And the production manager used to be bitching at me, saying, "Oh, man, you've got all these cases. You know what we're we going to do with all these cases?" And I said, "Put them with the rest of the cases." And inevitably, it happened all the time. You know, he'd say, "Oh, man, I was going to do." Uh, tour down tonight but i need the 335 and i'd go well we got the 335 we can do whatever you want and that's the way i dealt with it so i i Mm -hmm. it may seem rude that i ignored him but just through knowing what to do and knowing the gig and knowing the artist that he would want those things so we may have carried them for 20 30 shows before those cases were opened but when he wanted the guitar his guitar it was always there
0: there you go so you had to be a mind reader too and
1: yeah just no just to you know just always thinking ahead and Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said, production manager would go, be oh, carrying these cases, around, I haven't seen you open them yet. I go, well, you will, you know. And then he'd, there he would sort of come rushing in and go, man, I really want to do such and such, but I need a, I need that strat tuned up to half. And I go, it's okay, we got that, you know. So there was never anything that he asked me for that we didn't have. Nice. And uh, and then when you work for an artist for a long time, you know, you you get to know what kind of candy they like, you know, what they where they like their drink, what kind of picks that they like, you know, what kind of chewing gum they like, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Eric smoked, for instance, I'd, I would always carry Zippo. It had to be Zippo fuel, Zippo flints, Zippo everything Zippo. You know, stuff like that. Then uh, fountain pen ink, the most bizarre selection of things that may be required <laughs> by the guitar player. Yeah, so that was that's how that came about. You know, with me just saying, I, I know what I know what we're going to need, and I'm not going to take a chance that we're not going to have it, so I'm taking everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So really, so
0: really, the job too is also to make make the artist comfortable. Like whatever, like they don't even have to think. You're doing everything for them. Whatever they whatever they would want, boom, you've got mm. it there for them.
1: That's uh, generally the idea, you know. Mm. The whole essence of it at that level, and at any level really, is that, you know, whatever they do during the day, whether they're shopping, sleeping, swimming, spas, whatever they're doing, they don't have to worry about anything. Then they're transported in luxury to the venue, taken into a luxury dressing room filled with all the drinks and stuff that you could possibly want, everyone's favourite food. They're relaxed. All they got to do is walk up the stairs, we hand them the instruments, the rest is down to them. But if you let them... It's like the it's like a racehorse is maybe a good analogy. You know, if you take care of them enough, once you once you open the gates and they go, it's out of your hands. You know, that's. Yeah. Uh, but they, they they require that degree of uh, finesse and that degree of looking after. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah. so always knowing what they what they're what they they're think, what they want to do, or what they're going to ask you for, that kind of stuff. And obviously, with when you get to work with an artist a long time, you know, you pick all that kind of thing up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did did you ever have a DEF CON 5 moment where like something just blew up on you and you had to like, you know, you had to jump in and fix it like right that second?
1: I did, yeah, and it was. Uh, I think it was in Michigan. It was in a one of those what we call sheds. You know, they are sort of what the modern terminology I think is amphitheater, but we right. called them sheds. And it, it was incredibly torrential rain, so the rain was running down the aisles. There was water all around the bottom of the stage. And incredible humidity, and his guitar stopped working. And we had the stage set that meant I couldn't go directly to the amp to see what the problem was. And I switched guitars. And it didn't work. So that makes me think it's got to be the amp. Meanwhile, the band are all standing there. The crowd are getting pissed off, you know. And we later found out when I went to a third guitar in sheer desperation, it worked. And I knew then what it was. The two guitars, old Strats that I had, I'd had them uh, grounded on a device from a friend in London with this stuff called new Metal, NU. And uh, somehow the humidity had loosened the adhesive that, uh, that attached the grounding to the cavity of the pickups. And caused some kind of short. And I'd only had it done on two guitars, and those were the two guitars. When I got into the third guitar, set was back on again. And he said, man, what happened? And I said, well, I explained it to him. I said, uh, you know, obviously you go for a guitar first, amp second. Then I had to go through that process again. So mm-hmm. that was, uh, yeah, that was uh, the, the worst I ever had with him, I think. <laughs> it was very rare, you know, because if we have a, spare, you know, we always had spare amps, bust a string, have another guitar. Amp not working, have another amp, you know. So that was just, and it was in a night where all the, everything went wrong. The weather was terrible. The humidity, the fact that we couldn't get to the amps easily, we had to run around the side of the stage back and forth. I think the band eventually came off for a few minutes. Eric said, I can't stay out there. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it was really only a few minutes, but it seems much longer when you're, <laughs> I'm sure once that got, second 30, guitar, people looking at you.
0: Yeah. When the second one didn't work, now you're thinking, "Uh Oh,
1: yeah and that's what it was it was uh just caused by this strange grounding thing mm. say humidity loosened the adhesive it all got kind of mangled up shorted out something yeah that was the worst uh that was a nightmare but you know the rest of the time it was pretty good excellent
0: hi this is steve hackett and you're listening to the ugly american werewolf in london
3: hey pantheon listeners christian swain here you caught me just finishing up some editing on getting real with john and beth I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get twenty percent off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
2: I want to hear about some of the epic tours.
1: Well, they were all epic in their own way, you know. But we we got to do we got to do some amazing things, you know, like going to, to touring and doing gigs in Israel and stuff like that. All the tours were epic. Uh, the, the, obviously, the the George Harrison tour in Japan. was Yes, that's was what really I want to hear awesome. about. Yes, that was George. You know, Eric, George wanted to go and play, but the, at the time he was very, you know, we hadn't been playing much. Yeah, hadn't been playing live. And he was very reluctant because of the, you know, the constant Beatles thing all the time. And Eric's then manager, Roger Forrester, and I must just give this man a special mention because one of the great, great artist managers, rock managers of all time, a wonderful, wonderful man with a great sense of humor. He suggested various things and we'd get a call, right, we're going to do the states. Okay, no, George doesn't want to do it. Yada yada yada. Fast forward, a few of those things got cancelled, and eventually they thought, well, let's. How about Japan? And George said, yeah, Japan might be cool. So we uh, we went into rehearsals uh, down in Windsor in a film studio, and I was the only guy there. So the other guitar tech, uh, my friend Alan Rogan, who I mentioned earlier, since passed, was going to take care of George, but he was out with the Who at the time and uh-huh. couldn't make the rehearsals. Someone else was missing, the security guy. So I eventually I had to leave the house at like five in the morning to get there at seven. Andy fairweather Law had about 10 guitars. George kept bringing in guitars. He had 10 or 12 guitars that he was trying. On. Eric had shit with tons and tons of guitars, you mm-hmm. know, to get everything ready so that when they walk in the door, everything's ready to be picked up in, in, uh, with a capo on it or with the various tuning. That's another thing. Capo. It is a capo. It is not a capo. It's not a capo. Oh, you heard it here first, folks. Yeah. Look, everything that's spelt with capo, capo de tutti, capo de monte, capo de cino, you know, it's capo. Capo is C-A-P-O, there's no E in it, but for some reason in America, it's like tomatoes, you know, mm-hmm. they, they all say, hey man, you get me a capo, <laughs> and I go, no, I, I don't have any capos, well, what's yeah. that, that's a capo, anyway, small point, Um, so I had to have all these guitars, various tunings, all that kind of stuff, 12 strings, all ready for them. And I did the first two weeks of rehearsals just on my own, uh, you know, getting up at five every morning. And it was spectacular because the humor was great and George was feeling good. And it wasn't too far for any of them to travel from their country estates. And it turned out to be the rehearsals were amazing and the tour was just so well received. So incredible. The Japanese are so, such a wonderful audience, you know, such a respectful audience and didn't give him any uh didn't give him anything about love yeah <laughs> and during i must tell you this this is a, a great story <laughs> i have never told this one during oh, the rabbit. tour there was going to be a tour book you know that was specifically designed around that tour for a publication by genesis publications a very very famous english company that do these very high end Uh, Artist kind of books. Okay, nice. George Harrison live in Japan. So you know the book, like coffee table books. And we were told each, every, every single person on the tour would do a chapter, and I got to do a chapter. So at the rehearsals, we were doing this, or I was doing this parody of the. There was two guys called uh, God. I can't remember their exact names. There were two comedians. And they were doing a parody on their show of 1960s DJs, okay, English DJs, you know, which is all very, oh, yeah, pop testing, mate. Oh, whack oh Yeah, groovy, babe. Yeah. That kind of thing, you know. <laughs> so I assumed, I just took on one of these characters, and every day I would say, and now it's time to play one of our all-time favorite pop hits of all time, and every day it would be a different artist, but the song would always be Call Me Wanker. <laughs> You know, I just what came into my head. So you know, people George would be standing there, and I'd be go up to the mic, and they go check that mic, and I go, I do the routine, and and one day he said, he said to me, he said, "Hey Lee," I said, "What man?" He said, "What's all this stuff about? You know, call me wanker. What the what of? What's it about? It's really really stupid." <laughs> and I said, oh, "Well, I said it's just this this thing that we all laugh at, you know," and he said. But I don't get it. And I said, well, I tried to explain it to him. He said, oh, I see. He said, But, man, it's so stupid. And I, I never thought anything more about it. So come the end of the tour, blah, 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 after the tour, we all get our books. And uh, he did two great things. He wrote in everyone's book, thanks for writing the best chapter. So that every nice. when they opened the book, they went, "Oh, I wrote the best chapter." That was one way he got us. And then he he wrote in my page. He said, "Lee, thanks for, uh, for everything. Thanks for a great job. It was wonderful." And then he just wrote at the bottom, "Wanker," <laughs> which is an insult, you know. And I said to him, "I said thanks for the book, man." And he said, uh, "I said, but what what does that? What's the wanker thing about?" He said, "You know that thing you kept doing it rehearsals. Call me wanker while well, I'm calling you wanker." wonderful and that was that's how i got that in my book because i show it to people they go why did he call you wanker i've got to tell the story (laughs) tell the story and now we've heard it yes the george harrison story first time i've ever ever told that story publicly or anywhere maybe i mentioned it to to my wife or something once but sorry that's about the first time
2: so now we have an authentic john lennon story firsthand from terry reed an authentic George Harrison story firsthand from Lee Dixon. That's awesome.
1: And, uh, you know, George is, oh, God bless him, is such a, he had a wicked sense of humor, but he really was, uh, you know, it's well documented uh, what a, an incredibly spiritual person he was. How right. he got it, he, You know, he got it figured out. He didn't go down the the rabbit hole that so many others did. Mm-hmm. Um and I mean, just to to hang with them and to be with them a few times in my life, a couple of times at parties at Eric's, or you know, one time I went down to the house with a guitar for Danny, his son, mm-hmm. and uh, that and that was another great one. He said to me. Um, he said, you know, it's, very, it's just like, you're not, there's no razzmatazz. He's the guy in his gardening clothes and he's working in the garden. He'd come in, you know. Yeah. He said, want a cup of tea and you know, all that? Sitting in the kitchen, he's chatting away. He's going, oh, thanks for bringing the guitar down. I said, oh, that's cool. He likes it. It was the one of the Eric Clapton strats when the first Signature series came wow. out. And I said, man, I, I said, I was I, I was down here once, you know, at a party, but only for, a, you know, half an hour. By the time we got here, it was all finishing. And he said, do you want to have a look upstairs at the guitars and stuff? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, man, of course, you know. So I go up to the the studio and there's the there's Rocky, you know, there's a psychedelic Strat, and there's the you know the 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 Gibson acoustic J forty five he played with the Beatles, and mm-hmm. there's the 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 Gretsch Jet that he played most of the time, and I'm like, and he looked at me and he said, uh, "Hey Lee, you're not another one of those Beatle nuts, are you?" <laughs> and I said, "George, I'm afraid so." <laughs> I hate to admit it, but yeah, he can't said, I'll leave you enough. to it then. And he just left me in the room for a while with the guitarist mm. while he went and made a couple of calls. And that was uh, that was just like so special for me. And I have a few George stories, but not enough time to tell them all. I mean, Just there's quite a few. No, that's great, though. Maybe we'll get them another time. But yeah. on
2: that tour, it was basically the same band that Eric had for the Journeyman tour, right? With like Steve on the drums.
1: and uh, I can't even remember who, who played. Was it Gad on drums? Steve Ferron, Ferroni. Oh, so Ferroni. Yeah, I'm playing th- when you said Steve, I'm thinking Gad. Yeah. yeah, we had see, see, we had three Steves. We had Steve Ferroni, then we had Steve Gad, mm. then we had Steve Jordan, who's since uh, gone onto the Stones. Stones, right, right. So yeah. When they say Steve, it throws me a little bit. Yeah, Ferroni, monster. Yeah, it was pretty much that band, and Ray Cooper, I think, was on uh, that tour, and all it was was. Uh, you Know just Eric saying, Here's my band, you mm-hmm. don't have to worry about anything. The, the band's provided, all you got, we just got to go to Japan, play a few shows, have some fun, play the George songs, yeah, and and do the George stuff. And it was just wonderful. I mean, just it was very emotional. And uh, for me, you know, sort of growing up with them and, and being a fan and yeah. stuff like that. And uh, Nathan
2: East, Nathan East was bass player in that band, I that believe.
1: Thing? Nathan was playing there, yeah. yeah, the most recorded bass player in history, I, I believe. Yeah. Something like
2: 5,000 records or something like that. He's a
1: Nathan East, uh, one of my dearest friends, and a man who is a workaholic, a man who is on everything and is asked to be on it, a lot of stuff, you know, because yeah, he's he's, he's just a go-to guy. And he's such, you couldn't meet a nicer guy. I've never, I've known Nathan 20 plus years and I've never seen him not smiling, never.
2: Well, come to think of it, neither have I, but then he's always playing when I'm seeing him, whether yeah. it's with Clapton or Toto or whatever, your foreplay, whatever.
1: He has a massively, a massively diverse uh, career, uh, just Nathan, with the, I mean, he played with Daft Punk, you mm-hmm. know, he played with Toto, he played with Eric, he played with the Jazz Cats, you know, he, mm-hmm. he, Michael Jackson, uh, Quincy Jones, all those kind of cats, you know. Absolutely. Yeah plus hundreds of others that I couldn't even begin to remember. But wonderful, wonderful player. So, uh, you know, George had that great band and uh, tons of time to rehearse. We took it to Japan, and Mm -hmm. they were just so incredibly appreciative of it. You know, as, I mean, if we'd gone to Madison Square Gardens, I'd love to have seen it in the garden, you know, Mm. uh, where I've done many, many, many shows. But it wasn't to be. We we could only go somewhere where he felt comfortable. And out of it came that great record and the book and my title of... uh, told me banker nice
2: (laughs) well and so if you look in that red frame thing there that is a drumstick that's steve ferroni's drumstick that i caught in the third row on the journeyman tour in cincinnati now
1: i got uh (laughs) picks were my thing you know and and it was a it was a, a i really didn't ever intend it to be like that but pick collectors were never around until the 80s it seemed to start up 80s 90s well, all of a sudden, everybody's a pick collector, and they're mm-hmm. only want to show you the collection. And what I did was, we had a wonderful relationship with a great company called Ernie Ball. Sure. And um, Sterling, the Ernie's eldest son, who ran the company at the time, I'd, I could call him up from Japan at three in the morning and say, "Look, man, I need I need some new picks." I was always on. The, was, things would somebody would say something, I go, "Right, that's an idea for a pick." So on a tour, you know, most people would get four or five thousand picks made for the tour. I would only I never wanted to be abusive about it so I would only get them done, done in like 50 of these 100 of those maybe mm-hmm. because it would change by the next week I'd come up with something else and they were kind enough to always do that as a result, I think there are more Eric Clapton picks out there than anyone's as far as um, different styles and as stuff? far as different sayings, different styles, different uh, in jokes, everything mm-hmm. I would say what I mean because when I look at them now the collection that I have left. Dear Lord, there's hundreds and hundreds of different sayings. <laughs> and, of course, we had the, the sad thing about the George tour. The only regret was, and I really pissed off about this one, I had all these George Harrison picks made, especially for the tour. And I'd also had George picks made for the Wilburys. Yes. And I found out later that, you know, George would go to one tech and say, hey, I need some picks for the Wilburys. And then he maybe go to someone else say, "And we need some Wilbury picks." <laughs> so my my Wilbury picks were different from someone else's, basically. Yeah, they. Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to think where I was going with this. Well, you must have a collection that's unreal. Massive, massive, massive collection, and th- things will say there'll be stuff on them that people don't understand. They'll go like, for instance, people were always saying, "I, I want to give me a pick, give me a pick." Uh-huh. That was all I ever heard. Hey, man. Guitar guy, man, give me a pick, dude. <laughs> Yo, man, Clapton rules. And I'd, I'd yeah, okay, I try and give out as many as I could. And then this pick collecting thing came in, and because I'd had them unintentionally made in small quantities, they were highly desirable all sure. of a sudden. But one I remember, I, there was hundreds of them, but and I'd have to explain the meanings of them. But one that's simple. was I got so fed up with it, I just got. I called up Ernie Ball. Mm. And I said, "Make me, give me a, a two hundred picks." that just say a pick on either side you know and they just yeah. a pick i said yeah a pick. a pick and then i'd give them out to the fans and, and i'd get that get some other guy going you know from new york going hey man where does it say clap that i want to clap and pick man and i go that's what he played with tonight he played with that those picks yeah but there's no ac on it man go, well, <laughs> that's because it's a pick you know it's a people say give me a pick you asked me for a pick yeah i said what did i give you a pick <laughs> i said exactly good night you know that's it you have I, great voice talent you know that oh yeah that's uh that's something else i'd love to uh, i mean i i really do and i'm not being big headed about it but i really do and uh i'd love to use it or utilize it in some kind of voice work or something of that ilk you know That'd be great guitar playing is not mine but and you know doing voices and accents are is Spot a on. Thing.
2: The, the george harrison liverpool accent was great
1: yeah My, yeah, my George is not too bad, but it's, why do you keep saying that? Call me wanker, it's stupid, it's really stupid Yeah, great, great man And talking to George, you know, the the final concert The concert at the Royal Albert Hall, the concert for George That Mm -hmm. was just, I mean, everyone was just so emotional I mean, I've never been to anything like it just the love in the room, you know. And the evening opened with Ravi Shankar and his daughter, right. you know, doing all their thing in the Indian Orchestra before Olivia came out and talked to the crowd. And then, I mean, there were so many guys who wanted to be in that band, you know, to oh, be yeah. in that there was literally hundreds of drummers, hundreds of guitar. Hey man, I gotta play, I gotta play. But the band was chosen not by me; it was chosen from friends of George's and people that he would played with, and who Eric wanted. And uh, obviously, they brought in Paul, you know, to sing too, and, yeah, and Richie, to Richie playing drums was okay. great.
2: And um, and uh, Jeff Lynn certainly was there. but now you just mentioned how you would have loved to have seen the George show at MSG. One that did take place at MSG was when he toured with Steve Winwood in the two thousands. It was big for me, the Blind Faith song they did. Can't uh, find my way home. uh, It was the other one. Well, all right. No, no, no. It was the um, Presence of the Lord song. Presence of the Lord. That's what my wife and I danced to at our wedding. And I took her to that show. We saw the Columbus one, not MSG, but it was amazing. And when when they they filmed it for Madison Square Garden, when they did that song, because they trade lead vocals on that Mm. song, and then eventually they sing it together. They kind of gave each other a nod like that was a good one or you know we know the difference between the the good and the bad and tonight that was good did he did either of them have any feelings about how well that tour came off or how well that night came off
1: gotta remember at this that point you know they're both very old established artists you know they're not young guys anymore you know, Steve's just pretty quiet guy, you know, uh, come in, love to have a cup of tea with his tech and practice in the dressing room. And it was just another great tour. You know, there mm-hmm. weren't, there was no backslapping slapping and going, weren't we fantastic tonight? Wasn't mm-hmm. that great? There's none of that going on because they, not at that level, you know, the egos have, have gone. We just knew it was great and everybody wanted to see it. And not just because of the connotation of Steve and blind faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, when I was a young boy in Scotland, um, we were uh, we were just so enamored by all, that, all the music, you know, the, especially Eric and Cream and all this kind of stuff. And then Blind Faith came along and blew us away. In fact, my friend and I formed a tribute band called Blind Drunk, but uh, <laughs> we never, ever did any gigs. <laughs> Can't imagine. <more. laughs> but yeah, that was a lovely tour. would gentleman, and a scholar. Yeah, so um, that was another wonderful tour. And that was my last tour, 2009. We finished at my Pet Hate gig in America which is the Hollywood Bowl, as I call it. Oh, yeah. Not the Hollywood Bowl. I uh, just never, ever, I always had a, something terrible happen there it's on the two or three occasions I was there. And unknown to me, that was my last gig. And then, uh, you know, I came back home and the paperwork arrived and mm-hmm. the lawyers started and all. Then it became, uh, it's pretty, not nice. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. That's all right. I mean, like I said, it was, uh, when, when you have to deal with, With all these people uh, at some point in your life, it's nasty because they're all feeling like a kick in the guts, you know, after Mm -hmm. so many years of loyalty. But hey, it worked out. Um, Eric's still playing. I wish him good health, good luck, lots of love. And uh, and thank him for the the amazing life he gave me, really. Hi, this is Gary Kemp. And this is Guy Pratt. And you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London
0: podcast. What about
2: God? There's so many. I mean, I could ask you about the Arms concert. I could ask you about Live Aid. I kind of want to see. Did anything change after Unplugged? Because before that, Clapton's already a legend, right? He, he's already in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's already sold 100 million records. He's already, you know, got the big box set. Everything else, and then that comes along with the fact that the Tears in the Heaven wasn't on a Clapton album. It was on the Rush soundtrack. Yeah, and then here it is, basically the exact same thing. But then also some rework, Derek, and the Domino stuff, some some acoustic stuff, and the thing goes blockbuster big, diamond selling big, six Grammys big. Did anything
1: change after that, or was just more of the same? I think his bank count, bank account improved considerably. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that at that point, really, uh, Eric, although he had, was already, uh, already an established bona fide legend in the. The guitar playing community, right. and 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 through his peers and things like that, he wasn't really.
2: Um, he was know, he? I'm sure he was chuffed about it, but he
1: kind of it, taken well, the his, his career was kind of like that at mm-hmm. the time. You know, he was still big and was still touring and everything, but he wasn't like massive. And that record, as mm. you correctly say just sold and sold and sold and, and is still selling. Mm-hmm. And it, I think maybe not the first unplugged, but if it was w- one of the first couple easily, the biggest and um by far the biggest. And then of course, everyone got into it. You know, everybody did it from, uh, I think Elton, Nirvana, right. Crosby stills. Yes, and every, everybody. Uh, and that record just recorded in, in a film studio in front of an invited audience went on to be his biggest selling record. And of course, you know, the, the tears in heaven thing and all that mm. and you know the, the things I didn't like like I called it lounge Layla you know you know but it was different and you know I wasn't I'm, I wasn't uh, uh, sitting in the audience I was working so keep my opinions to myself and uh, off they went and it was a massive record my personal w- favourite records of Eric's and in, in the period of you know uh, I mean I worked on a lot of the albums too nearly all of the albums but two of my Particular favorites were records that his fans didn't really like. He had a new producer a guy called Simon Climie, okay. who uh, they had they had initially gotten together to do some uh, project for Giorgio Armani, you know, some music. And Eric was really interested in this this uh, initial kind of uh, hip hop and sampling and Pro Tools. It was all just coming out, and Simon was a, a young guy and and very. You know, much younger than the the, the phenomenally great legendary producers that we've been using, the F- Russ Titelman. I mean, Tom Dowd. I mean, guys that are just legendary as, uh, for what they do. And Simon was an unknown quantity, and this record came out, and uh, they did this music for Armani. Then they did a record that very few people know about. Mm-hmm. The band was Eric wanted the band to be called uh, TDF, Totally Dysfunctional Family, <laughs> and the record. Uh, was called uh, Retail Therapy with a graffiti cover. Yeah. He didn't want it. He didn't want it. Yeah. Uh, eventually found its way into the Clapton bins and record stores, but he didn't want it at the time. He wanted it to stand alone. So let's just do this and see. Don't tell people it's mean. See what it goes like. And it's one of my favorites. I mean, it's a lot of clever stuff on there that uh, he and Simon did. You know, samples and sampling and stuff like that. And then, of course, the only downside to the Pro Tools thing was we weren't using tape, any tape for backup, but all of a sudden you could play a thousand guitar solos, which gave you too many to choose from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Reptile and Pilgrim. Really? Yep. And before that, August, everything he's done since, and I'm not being sour grapes here, but everything he's done since... Reptile and Pilgrim and even a lot of the fans say it's you know it's really struggling you know it's like Str- it's not it's not his his strength and he was never a great writer you know he wrote a couple of great songs but he wasn't a consistent writer I don't think even by his own admission but I think but um yeah those records People were going, oh, man, it's really different. And I, that's what I liked about them. August. Was, they, yeah. took, they took him into different territory and uh, ex- encouraged them to write and and write songs that w- could be under that kind of a banner of modern you know, mm-hmm. sampling, hip hop st- sort of stuff. Well,
2: that's interesting. I mean, he always you always try something and come back to the blues, right? I mean, he, he, well, it's he, just, he's he a tried, blues
1: guy his whole life. Right. right. He
2: tried country, but then he come back to the blues. He tried, you know, pop and come back to the blues. The album he made before august behind the sun with donald duck Dunn, and it it went it did well it went platinum it had some hits on it but she's waiting and others and but then the next year august comes out and it's different he doesn't just want to sit he never wanted to sit in one place
1: i have a friend in nashville called ryan Warner, who's a phenomenal guitar player his dad is a very famous country artist called steve Warrener. and when ryan came to join the band that i currently work for gary Allen, he was Man, he said, I used to come and see the shows And you'd be up there, you know, make me feel really old But we both sat down one day and he said Tell me, man, said, what's your favourite Eric record? And I said, i got to tell you, probably August And he went, me too! Really? Yeah, and he's he Obviously can play, Eric. You know, most of these Guys can play all the blues and do all that kind of stuff But Eric's uh, His whole thing was initially the blues yep. uh, Henceforth the Yardbirds And then on to John Mayle and, and And looking for different avenues and he, as you say, he always returned to that uh, to that particular genre. You know, you know when we do we do live shows, and when you're listening to the same set every single night, you really hope that they're going to change it up tour to tour. But that was one of Eric's. He got, go into a thing of ah, uh, just we just wanted to play a certain amount of songs, and someone would say one day we all sat down at rehearsal. And he said, "Right, everybody, write down a song," and I wrote down two or three. So, but he gets about sixty songs, given. and he goes, "Nah." wrong key no i can't do that <laughs> no i can't do that one without so no i can't do that when it came down to the- it would just so it would have a thing in the set blues and sea every night and there was so many great blues songs he could have chosen but he always did robert johnson or 99 percent of the time mm. robert johnson the little queen of spades and even though it's a brilliant piece of music and the the the, the playing is is superb you're just hearing it every night you know and it mm. loses its magic and every night, Lose and see What are we are going to do Little Queen is fading <laughs> <laughs> But that's just You know If you're working For a band you, you have highs and lows You know the songs That you like And the songs That you don't like You know Right Of course uh, I was fortunate enough That most of the stuff Was just amazing And he would resurrect uh, Things occasionally That's right Just so many great things I mean I I did a, a, a radio interview For a, a guy in Florida A couple of years ago A couple of interviews He did with me And I just wrote A bunch of stuff down and I and I started looking at it, and I brought it with me tonight, and just to run through things like you've done gigs. I've been at the White House, played two gigs at the White House, Buckingham <laughs> Palace, the Kremlin. Done over 125 shows at the Royal Albert Hall. <laughs> certainly done 40 or 50 at Madison Square Garden. Toured wow. most of the the you know we didn't never went to India, unfortunately, but you know we toured. Uh, we went to. South Africa you know we went to South America we went to all over America all over Europe everywhere we could go and always trying to find something new to do so it was interesting but you know there's the cream shows at Royal Albert Hall and Madison Square Gardens You're doing the riding with the king with B.B. B. King mm-hmm. the crossroads shows the Rush movie with Greg Ullman, Lethal Weapon with the great Michael Kamen you you look at any movies you know, we know Michael kamen yeah, and Michael and I were real tight. I mean, a lovely, lovely genius of a man, yeah, very talented man, and everything he was on every movie soundtrack, he was on everything, and uh they met during doing a thing called Edge of Darkness for the b b c which is not a very well known series. it was really really But Clapton into the music for heavy it. duty him and Michael, yeah. yeah, uh then there's the live age, and then you know we took a band to Japan once where uh Elton John was the second can- piano, piano player guest piano player Knopfler was the other guitar player goodness gracious you know we did one tour like that the Bob Dylan shows at Madison Square Garden which was just mind-blowing to me because all of my heroes were there you know Neil Young Crosby the birds McGinn everybody like that you know were, we're all there the George in Japan tour the concert for George Lenny Kravitz and Eric playing a jam at the White House which is just you've got to see it you've got to see this thing it's spectacular Lenny Kravitz and Eric at the White House. You know, the Legends thing, we went out and did a jazz tour with Joe Sample, Steve Gadd, the great David Sanborn, and uh, Marcus Miller. And Eric, and Eric's not a jazz guy, but they went out and he adapted to that, you know. Hmm. The Crash Ocastle Guitars, which were named by me, all the graffiti guitars that come out. The Christie's Auctions, I did two massive auctions with all these guitars. And then there's other things I did. You know, I went to work on Quadrophenia, uh, taking care of John Entwistle for a couple of weeks at Madison Square Garden. Oh, wow. Playing at the Apollo in Harlem, which was quite a trip with Albert Collins, BB, Buddy Guy, Jeff Beck. And I think I took care of four of them that day. Oh, wow. four out of the five just there's just a few snippets you know of a of, of a massive massive career and that's just things i wrote down to try and you know trigger my memory when the guy was asking me questions you are, yeah live aid obviously was a, a massive one and was he in philadelphia we were in philadelphia yeah, okay. phil collins was the only one that did both right but i figured he would have been in america versus yeah England. We were, and that was just a i mean a, a, sorry, a spectacular day just an amazing uh just so much going on and mm-hmm. so much happening and uh, this thing being done on both sides of the Atlantic, the coordination, the the, the heat of the day, it was intense in, the, in Philadelphia. It was like 100 and something degrees. And I always remember at the end of every, I can't swear, but if I could, I would, everybody got up on stage. I mean, Every, I thought the stage was going to collapse. You mm-hmm. couldn't see the musicians. You know, everybody was up on stage. Security attendants, car park attendants, mm-hmm. all the bands, everybody. And I could see Eric, and he's not one of the guys. He's he's not like a kind of a guy that walks to the front of the stage to play. You know, he he just he does his thing. And I'm thinking this is going to be insane. So the last minute, I ran back to his amp, which was way, you know way behind him. He'd been pushed way back, and I cranked the amp. And I thought you might not be able to see him, but you're sure as hell going to hear him. Yeah. <laughs> And you do <laughs> uh, when you hear that big uh, uh, ensemble at the end uh, doing the thing. And, they go, and somebody said to me, man, Eric sounds good. I said, yes, yeah, so I turned him way up because, mm-hmm. I, 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 I mean, if he's in amongst all those people and it doesn't cut through, it's going to be a nightmare. Right, right. Yeah, so tons and tons of great things. Making the Rush movie was a trip, you know. It was just him and I that went to do it. Really? Yeah, just him and I, and we went to do it, and uh, with uh, Lily Zanuck uh, of the, you know, Daryl Zanuck's wife, okay, who was the producer, That's director, producer, yeah. wonderful lady, and uh, that was a that was a trip, you know, doing a soundtrack to a movie. Mm-hmm. But then he's done other soundtracks to stuff and worked on other things. There's a great Irish film called The Van, The Van, that he plays on, and it's in, incre- I mean, it's pricelessly funny. It involves a it's a guy the van in question is like a catering van, like a, a grub truck, food truck. Gotcha. And it's and it takes place in the year where Ireland qualified for the World Cup And uh, you'd have to see it It's just priceless Just incredibly good humour And he did lots of other I mean, tons of sessions we did for people Playing with other people Other people's albums I mean, this was just a smattering Of of the stuff that I've done The Chuck Berry thing was an amazing event You know, when we did the Hail, Hail rock and roll thing With Keith and With Keith and Robert Cray And yeah. those guys, Joey Spampanato And I think Jordan was See, Jordan was playing drums on that Probably And just to, you know, to be a part of that And to this is Chuck Berry. I mean, I'm standing next to Chuck Berry. I mean, they, everybody talks about Elvis and all that, but the, the king of rock and roll. But for me, in terms of the driving beat, is Chuck Chuck and No Little, Doubt. Yeah, Chuck and Little Richard. I mean, mm-hmm. they're the, for me they're the kings of rock and roll. Maybe Jerry Lee, a bit, but Chuck Berry was just like it was something. It was a it was a force of nature. You the know? chords he played, everything came out of that. Everything. And I've tried to play that stuff for years. I say I write, I play because I write, I'm not a guitar player per se, you know, I'm very mediocre really, but uh, that's only because there's so many great guys out there. But yeah, that was a trip to do, you know, just being at Berry Park and for the rehearsals and and hearing Chuck and and his demands and things like that, uh, you know. (laughs) And we went to the, I always remember, we went to the theatre to do the show and uh, there was a massive big dressing room. And so all the guys kind of gravitated towards that, you know. We will we'll all just share this room, mm-hmm. and Chuck can have that, you know, that nice little room downstairs. You know, and Chuck came in and he looked at his room and he went upstairs and he said, he said, "Okay, I want this dressing room." <laughs> and and the and and the the organizers, the I don't know, the director of the film, he's going, well, Chuck, you know, there's all these guys. Should said, yeah, but I'm the star. And this is a star dressing room. I get the star dressing room. And everybody's like, yeah, whatever, you know. So, yeah, you had like, you know, you're Sounds walking like down a corridor and there's, uh, you know, Keith Richards and Robert Craig getting changed in a ladies' bathroom right. and <laughs> walked further down the corridor and there's a broom covered with Eric and uh, and, and, and Joey Spampanato trying to get <laughs> the jackets on because that's the only place they could go to change. But it was, an, again, an, an inspiring thing to have been a part of. And although I'm not doing it anymore in that at that scale, On world touring, I mean, my track record and the stuff that I've done is, you know, second to none. Couldn't be bought, you know. Mm -hmm. Just just to be there, you know, that's amazing.
0: One of the things that you brought up quickly was the uh, playing at the White House with Lenny Kravitz. Oh yeah, and the story that I heard was that it was supposed to be an acoustic set only, and then Kravitz says, "You know, let's play all along the Watchtower or something." And you had the foresight to have the break in case of emergency strat on hand.
1: Oh, totally. I mean, I said, what are we going to do? He said, I'm just going to do an acoustic blues. So we'll need a Martin and a, and a spare, you know, just in case of bust a string. And I said, yeah, okay. And that day, the first time I did it, it was an incredible. It was both um, emotional both times for different reasons. The first time was the Special Olympics kids, and that'll get that'll put the choker in your voice right away mm-hmm. when you see all these kids there. You know, and yeah. it was an amazing emotional night. You know, they got to meet their heroes, uh, Bon Jovi, Cheryl Crow. They were all up on stage. But the second one was a much more organized event, and and three things stand out for me: Al Green, who I'm a massive, massive fan of, uh, in the afternoon he came in to do his rehearsal. At this point, Eric and everyone, you know, the major artists have gone You know, he's one of the last guys to come in And I'll get to the Lenny story just after this And he did a, a Change Is Gonna Come gospel song by Sam Cooke It was absolutely, I mean, hairs, the hairs on everyone's arms were standing up back neck He just walked into the stage with a coat, right around his shoulders And he said "Said to the band, good evening, gentlemen They're, Are we ready to go? Let's run it And he just did one take and that was it And it was just magic So, fast forward or reverse rather To the afternoon And Eric's doing the acoustic blues thing And Lenny comes in And, and he's uh, he, That is uh, such a killer band I think Cindy was playing drums with him Who's since married to Carlos Santana And uh, obviously Craig Ross is, is ever present Other uh, guitar player who's of great talent And you know Lenny and Eric are talking and stuff And he's going man we should do something And, and Eric said yeah, but I'm just doing an acoustic thing He said I ain't got a strat. I ain't got my guitar <laughs> And I said well as, as it happens I do have a twin here, and you strat. and he went, do you? Oh, wow! You know, like, great, well, let's do it. And if you see the footage, it's Eric straight into a guitar, and that just, it's one of the best examples of his playing I've, I could ever, ever recommend to anyone, because Jimmy, at the time, was using, you know, that was in the studio, and he was using phasers, and delays, and wah-wahs, and octave dividers, and all kinds of effects on that, and you listen to that track, and People, people always say, Where's the effects? What's he playing through? I said, Straight into the amp. And it's just that that's what I tell people. It's, it's you can go and buy all this stuff. You know, you can buy the exact same amp, the same strings, have me set it up, but you're never going to sound like I'm. Just like nobody's ever going to sound like Jeff Beck. Nobody's ever going to sound like Pete Townsend because. It, the magic is the correlation between the heart, the hands, and the mind. That mm. th- these people have this gift, you know, that they can, they just have this fluidity, this s- thing that they stamp on their playing. And that was one of the best solos I've ever, ever heard him play in 30 years. And the only thing about it, if you watch the footage, is Lenny's getting so into it that he gets too close to him. And Eric, what if you, well, most people who've ever went to see him, plays with his eyes shut a lot of the time That's when right. he's soloing. <sighs> And Lenny kind of just banged in at him just a little bit, just touched him of took him out of it. But he <laughs> kept on the guitar. <laughs> mm. And that was only possible because, uh, you know, I had the Strat and I had the twin there. Mm. Although he told me to only take the acoustic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you just knew. Somehow you just knew.
1: I just, you know, like when you've doing the job for a long time, you just know, you do know. <laughs> if if he said he was going into the studio, if we were going to Steve Winwood's to do something on Steve's album, I go, I'm just going to play acoustic. Well, I'd I'd take two amps because it was way out in the country, and I didn't would have a spare, and I'd take a couple of strats, and I'd take a slide guitar just in case, you know, mm-hmm. and a dobro. And he go, oh, we got that. That's cool, you know. So that's maybe why I lasted so long. <laughs> but you know as far as i'm concerned we had a great deal of love for each other and all i want to do now with the rest of my life is and i'm leaving it pretty late is to get into the find the, the right person to write songs with or find the, the guy that's a great player who needs lyrics hi this is jim mccarty of the Arbors and you're listening to the ugly american werewolf in london
2: and you mentioned you worked with jeff beck you know, one night, Eric's not really afraid to follow anybody because he's Eric Clapton. But I saw him once at the Crossroads Festival. Jeff Beck plays before him. He plays Nessum Dorma, which is his like operatic thing. And Clapton is beside himself. Like, he's like, what is he doing? What? What? How am I supposed to follow this? So, Then he goes out and sits down and starts with an acoustic So he's like, I'm just going to bring it all the way back down. Have you ever seen him like, I'm not following this man, or you got to put something else on in front of me?
1: He was always in awe of the the blues guys, you know, like if Buddy played with us, sometimes Buddy would come and play with us or, uh, you know, occasionally Otis Rush and people like that. And those are Eric's heroes. And obviously, you're in awe of your heroes. But he did his, when we toured Japan, it was another amazing tour, Jeff and Eric in Japan. Mm. And I was very fortunate That Jeff's tour manager Peter Mackay uh, su- Supports the same soccer club As I do I've known him Since Dire Straits days And we're at rehearsals You know And I'm standing behind Vinny Cagliotta Who's my favourite drummer I mean There's there's great drummers But um, Vinny's just Off the charts You know And I'm like Wow Jeff uses side fills A lot of artists Don't use them anymore But Jeff likes side fills And he's doing A couple of songs That I like So And this was like any ears were just Kind of coming in To be popular You know And th- their monitor engineer Said to me You're a massive fan you i said man none bigger and he said i'm gonna give you the spare pack have you got headphones with a, a mini jack he said yeah he said i'm gonna i'll do you a mix uh, of the of the live show oh. so that you can listen to it while you're setting up nice. and i said well that would be awesome and then during the rehearsals, Pete MacKay said to me, "Just walk onto the stage with me." And I said, "No, I, I mean he's playing, you know." He said, "But look, you, you'll get the full experience." And I stood in the middle of the stage. Jeff's a vegetarian; that was the thing we had in common. Very quiet guy. I mean, I, I worked with him a few times, met him several times, but wasn't a, you know, you had to carry the conversation. Gotcha. <laughs> but uh, so I walk out in the middle of the station. It's coming through the side fills and it's coming through his amps, and they're, you know, they're playing like, I don't know, Where Were You or something like that. And I'm just like, I can't describe his tone or anything. It's beyond perfection. There's lots of great guys have got it. You know, Eric Johnson's got great tone. This young kid, uh, Chris Tone Ingram, Kingfish, mm. is the. Mm. Mom. Uh, gonna, oh, yeah, love that oh, kid, yeah. Monster player feel mm. and stuff. But Jeff, what Jeff did, what nobody else did, you know, everybody else played the guitar. Jeff had all this these techniques and touches. I mean, just like such finesse. And they never, you know, every album was different. Jeff never sat back on his hunches, he went in That's different right. directions all the time. Jazz
2: Fusion, prog Blues. He did it. Yeah, he, he never so
1: uh, we did a great tour called the Arms Tour. Which was uh, Action and research Into multiple cirrhosis For Ronnie Lane Who's the bass player In the faces And well, great Great friend of us all A wonderful character Sadly gone We did it on both sides of the Atlantic, and at that point, Jeff had Jan Hammer in his band. I think Simon Phillips was playing drums. Right. Fernando Saunders was playing bass. Anyway, that was, and they were doing the pretty much the there and back album live, and it was just every night I'd go out to the. I, I never leave my position, never leave my station, but every night I'd go out and listen to the, you know the first five or six songs that Jeff set in the audience, just to get it, you know, it's amazing. And he's been dead just over a year already, and uh, that was a massive shock to everyone because. Yeah, he wasn't a crazy druggie or drinker guy. He was a quiet guy, healthy, vegetarian. And something just took him, you know, and it was a, a massive, uh, a massive loss. And you couldn't—he was inimitable. I mean, even Clapton and Gilmore, who know their way around strats, Gilmore would admit,
2: "I've tried to play the way Jeff Beck. No, no, I can't be- do
1: it. It's, it's because of his." Is, is style and you know each guitar player learns from their heroes, really, or are, has are, influenced by people. And although Eric was immersed in the blues and like the Stones, where you know the early blues stuff, maybe to a lesser degree, Jimmy Page, but Jeff had all that, but loved guys like uh, Gene Vincent's guitar player, a guy called Cliff Gallup. Okay. Who was uh, one of his heroes. So Jeff could take just little nuances of other guys' stuff that you wouldn't even notice and incorporate it incorporate into it his totally unique and individual thing. You know, the control of the tremolo arm, the touches, you know, the heel of his hand, mm-hmm. just pressing down on things, uh, you know, doing three things with with his right hand, you know, plucking, playing, and and turning, you know, what we call bowing with, a you know, like a violin mm-hmm. on the, the volume knob up and down. And it uh, was just everyone's favorite guitar player. When we did the Ronnie Scotts thing in London, uh, Ronnie Scotts, a uh, very very famous old jazz guy, probably in his nineties now, and was that it? was with Vinnie and Tal Wilkenfeld on yeah. the right? Yeah. And that was we wanted. To do, well, Jeff wanted to do something in London, but but where? You know, it's got to be intimate, but it can't be. And Ronnie Scotts was the venue. Nice. And you look around. I mean, I looked around that audience every night, and and it was just nothing but guitar players. You know, everybody was in there. Jimmy Page, Robert Plant. Pagey e. Plant. Well, you know, Robert's not a good player, but yeah, all those guys. He came to see him. Yeah, and uh, you know Brian May. You know everyone was in there. And of course, when it came Eric's Eric's turn to go up, they did a blues. You know, playing safe, or they did two blues, I think something like that. But just to hear Jeff in that in intimate setting doing, where were you? And just watching him, where he's hitting harmonics, and the, and it has to be. I mean, there cannot be the width of a cigarette paper out, or it's going to go. Oh, or, ah, you're gonna hear it. Mm-hmm. Just those, and he way holds the notes. A similar track is, uh, and probably my favorite Jeff track is called "The Final Piece." It's from an album called "There and Back," Okay uh, which is again probably my favorite Jeff record. Is that uh, early '80s? Yeah, uh, yeah, kind of '80s. And okay. his, his uh, tour manager at the time, Ralph Baker, told me. I said that track is just it just blows me away. He said, "Well, there's a funny thing. That wasn't going to be on the record. Of you know, they'd finished recording. It was just uh, Jeff and the keyboard player, and Jeff just started playing the keyboard player just." You know, brought in some string things, just little touches to play against. And it's the most emotional record. I mean, it brings me tears every time I hear it. It has everything, you know, your little fast passages, and then this, just this. Expression, this thing that only Jeff Beck had. And he was incredible. But I think what
2: made the ARMS tour, I'll tell you right now, as after Jackson and I lived together in the mid-90s, I went to the Blockbuster one day and found in the for sale, because we've already played it enough for nobody's renting it anymore, Ben, was this VHS of the ARMS tour. And I'm like, looking at the names on there, and it's like, clapped it back end page. I'm like, okay, well, I'll check it out. Didn't really know what it was, had to see it, and then learn what it was all about, the benefit for Ronnie and all that. At the end, they kind of have this thing and I, I think they did it during tulsa time where eric and jeff and jimmy would
1: trade and it's what everybody had kind of waited to That's see what they'd all been waiting for it took the roof off madison square gardens when jimmy came out and jimmy was uh he was in rough shape he was in rough shape you know he was still kind of he was like very skeletal and very you know coming down from what other whatever things he was on at the time you know uh, and that was you know jeff knew what he was doing eric knew what he was doing but when jimmy came on what you don't see in the footage is you know the rush on to, to clear all the pedals away and everything out of his way because he's he would come on and his cord would get caught around a pedal board and he'd be dragging it halfway across the stage <laughs> and he's sweating buckets I do an amazing impersonation of him that night that Eric used to get me to do and they were all kind of worried because you know because of his ill health uh, and I'm so glad that he's he's uh, reached 80 and he's a, a healthy brilliant musician he actually looks pretty been. good these days. yeah he looks great but then you know he wanted to do it and he came uh, I I remember the first night at the Madison Square Garden. He came on the stage. I mean, it was like maybe five minutes before the applause died down, and he was trying. You know, he had to take off a couple of rings and things like that, and mm-hmm. he'd get his scarf sorted out, roll up his sleeve, and he's just standing there. Can get this ring off and you see him messing around and then I mean Jimmy could have uh, Jimmy could have taken a poop that night on the stage and they would have gone crazy yeah. but also the significance of the Yardbirds history Eric Jeff and Jimmy, Jimmy all being in the Yardbirds I mean Jeff and Jimmy were in the Yardbirds at one time Jeff playing guitar and Jimmy playing bass before Jimmy took over the guitar duties that's right and it was just that momentous thing that here's these three guys these three world famous guitar players who all came from this one band have this one common denominator and and here they are playing up on the stage together you know so it was pretty spectacular and the the, and the love for Ronnie and stuff Alan and I again my friend Alan I was talking about earlier we we used to take you know right you'd come on the side of the stage and you'd go what, what am I doing let's swim them on come on Neil, let's go and uh, you know you'd take my arm I'd hold my arm tight and Alan um, his other arm too getting emotional but it was a great thing to do but it raised a lot of money a lot of awareness mm. we did it in the Royal Albert Hall and then we Took it to America, changed the band a little bit I think Paul Rogers joined us in, on the American leg Right, because I don't think he was in No, he didn't on, do the, yeah. the, the, the the other thing And then of course, it was great, uh, great, great stories You know, you've got like Charlie Watts there playing drums You know, you've got Bill Wyman You've got mi- mixtures of all these great rock royalty of, of, uh, of British artists That's right and and then the icing on the cake, the three guitar players. But Joe Cocker uh, came to do it with us. <laughs> and it was a wonderful, God bless him. It was a wonderful, wonderful moment. We've got like maybe I think Charlie's playing drums, maybe Kenny Jones is in there or something. Couple of drummers It's all set up And Joe comes in And hes I think he'd You know Been for a few cocktails To be kind <laughs> And um, everyone Hey Joe And he's like ah, What are we going to do You know And he gets sits up on the stool And as he gets up on the stool The stool goes backwards And before he sung a note He's completely Trashed the two drum kits Falling over backwards On the stool And everyone's nice. in like Oh yeah um, Yeah right uh, Just crazy memories That you have Of, of these kind of, uh, of Events and the, the stuff At uh, Live Aid I could tell you Some great stories But after Live Aid But Again, I dare say was, <laughs> authorities wouldn't allow it. You're right. Well, Lee, we, we could talk to you for hours, literally, and we will
2: most assuredly have you back sometime and maybe focus on a, a few other things. We, we really appreciate you sharing these stories of legends with us. It's really what our show is all about.
1: Well, we only just touched. You know, it was just a wee bit of the icing on the cake we rubbed off tonight. There's there's hundreds of things, and some of them, when I look at that sheet, it triggers other things of what happened that day and who played with who and what he was doing and and all that kind of stuff. And like I say, i will be happy to come back and and continue our very interesting conversation and tell you some more stories. And in the meantime, anyone out there wants to help me write my book or write songs with me or use my amazing voice talents, mm-hmm.
2: I'm available. And and were you on the road and? At- all this year that you already know
1: well i'm starting next week in nashville Bander, work we're having additions for a new guitar player and then we're going to have a break and then we'll have five or six days rehearsal and then we'll start touring for the year about 80 shows a year or something and i'll do that I love them They love me As country It was very very difficult To adapt to Coming from the rock arenas And stuff and, and all of a sudden You're playing in these Bizarre places And rodeos And things like that Right right But once you get into it It's wonderful And the great thing About the country artists Is they all go and meet Their fans You know the I noticed that with You know Guys like Eric And the, the bigger artists Elton and stuff It's like The cars are coming Into the building Clear the building Clear the building And nobody gives up You know <laughs> There's nobody there There's no fans back there But right. they do this All this hoo-ha Whereas country guys They come off stage and Either before they go on Meet and greet Or after meet and greet Not since COVID But you know It turned me on to A whole different appreciation of, Of what these guys do And I was offered A lot of great stuff you know, when people realized I'd moved to the States you know, mm-hmm. I was in, uh, you know, I was in the frame for several pretty big gigs But again, it was that thing of signing up for two years and you're gone, you know And I didn't want that anymore I'd, I'd had enough of touring, you know, being away, I'd lost dogs I'd, I can only imagine My wife had suffered through it And by that time, I'd been here a year and we had a whole bunch of dogs And I just, you know, this gig came up and the guy said to me Well, we're called Weekend Warriors, you know, we mostly play at the weekends Two or three shows on your back home I said, I'll give it a go, yeah, sounds good Mm-hmm. And the money was, uh, if if I was working more, would be just as uh, as good as I was uh, getting, I suppose. But you're only paid by the show in country. You know, you're not paid a salary or anything. Gotcha. And uh, I just stuck with it And I've had some great times With these guys And it's a great band To work for a Guys called Gary Allen Hasn't had a number one For about five or six Seven years But has had several Big albums and stuff He's a, a major country artist And I love him And they love me And that's what I'm doing Excellent Well I'm glad You're still doing it And I'm glad we're neighbours now I mean apparently Your wife lived on the same street That we ended up living on In London And now That was, the, that was a very Very bizarre coincidence I've got lots of stuff That can't be told But uh, I've got a lot of stuff That can be told And you heard some of it tonight. It's wonderful It's wonderful. Well, I, I just uh, One thing uh, I'd like to Just reaffirm That I'm very very blessed And very very grateful To have had that career With Eric I mm-hmm. wish it was still going on But you know It probably would have Fizzled out at some point With me wanting to move To the States Because Karen wanted To move back here Then he wouldn't have Had an in town guy Which was crucial Of course You know The past is the past And you just gotta Get go on with it And, and carry on But That's eternally I mean. grateful To him for all The great times we had And the amazing laughs And the stuff That I told you The stuff that we'd Just go and do on our own Like the almond. Brothers at the Beacon, mm-hmm. the, you know, tour managers, product. no, 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 no. Just Lee and I will go, you know, yeah. or doing going to do the 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 Rush soundtrack or things like that. Going to the White House, no, no, produ- no production, no tour managers, none of that Just stuff. Just he, him and I, because that's all we needed, you know. He that's did, amazing. he acted my end, he did his end, and we always had a great time. It was Over- definitely
0: for the better because now you're on the show with us. So thank you.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry, um, you didn't get to ask too many questions, but uh, we meet prattling on and uh, <laughs> every show. Nobody like wants that. to hear me talk anyway. yeah yeah yeah, i I found you very interesting well thank you well maybe we'll get some more from you on the on the the next next time we meet to do sounds good what a
2: fun time we had talking with lee dixon i know sometimes the Audio might be a little different. Sometimes it was tough to keep old Lee on the mic. He's such a demonstrative guy. He wants to wave it around and and really telling a story and and showing us how it happened. I'm like, hey, can you just keep that in your hand and up close to your face? But it, it was great. It was so much fun. Where else can you get these firsthand stories of all these amazing artists? Course, Eric Clapton, but George Harrison, oh my goodness, amazing. I doubt very much that this will be the last time we ever have him on our show because we have so many questions we could ask. We have so many stories about specific tours and specific events where we could really, really go down the rabbit hole. But where else are you going to hear firsthand stories about like Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, George Harrison, all these people that we love? And he's got a great sense of humor, those voices that he does, those impressions spot on man it's good stuff so we thank lee for being on and i know he seems like it's a little bit of sadness there not being with clapton anymore in the way that the relationship ended but hey he's with him for three decades toured the world got to meet extraordinary people has a good life and is still in the business You country fans Might be able to catch a glimpse of him working with Gary Allen today. So we want to know, guys, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? Let us know. Email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You let us know the bands, the artists, the albums, the concerts, the DVDs, the books, the rock properties you want to hear us talk about here on the show. Make sure you download and subscribe. Wherever you get your podcast, guys, downloads are the lifeblood of the podcasting industry and we need that to help grow the show to get more and better guests on and if you're thinking about it guys hey please go out and give us a five-star review on apple or spotify are probably the best but anywhere you get your podcasts it just helps us find more rock fans like you and we're going to kind of continue the clapton journey next week with a review of one of his classic albums so you'll have to tune in for that until then thank you to pantheon podcast for making us part of the family thank you to our sponsor rarevinyl.com where if you use the code ugly you can save 10% off your entire purchase thank you for lee dixon for his warm and honest and fun stories and to all you rock and rollers all around the world be cool and keep doing what you do to keep rock alive